0: And they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha. Grab your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible with you, we should have some people coming around. Feel free to borrow one from them. want your eyes in a Bible today as we just savor and enjoy and reflect And what may be a familiar story for you, but (laughs) is like no other. Mark chapter 15, verse 22. And they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered Jesus wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour, 9 a.m., Passover morning. It was the third hour when they nailed him to a cross. And the inscription of the charge against him mockingly read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one robber on his right and one robber on his left. And those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, (laughs) You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another saying, He saved others and he can't save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down from the cross that, that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Let's just pause for a moment here. I mean, kind of like, you know, let's wait a second here. What is going on? <laughs> I mean, what's going on with this story? You you look at this And it's like, why did it get to this point? How did it get to this point? I mean, here's the deal. A couple days earlier, Jesus, uh, the equivalent one of God, God in the flesh, is praised and hailed as he enters into Jerusalem by crowds of people at the triumphal entry. And there they are. Hail, save us, we pray. And all that's taking place. And then a couple days later, that's happening. Seriously, what's the deal with this story? (laughs) I mean, you have to admit, quite bizarre. What's going on here? Well, here's what's going on here. The Bible is a narrative story from beginning to end of God's redemption plan. It's about God seeking to bring a people of glory givers unto himself. And Jesus Christ is the Bible's chief character and the cross and the empty tomb that we will talk about next week are pinnacle points in this redemptive story that God has put together. And this is about a divine redemption plan, a bringing back plan, a buying back plan, a redemptive plan that's from God. And how did things get to this point? Well, if we're going to really be serious about how did things get to this, we've got to go back to the beginning. So grab your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 1. You see, so often in our day, I'm concerned that the idea of the cross, the familiar story of the cross, even as it was very possible you saw, maybe talked on the news this morning as I did, and it's kind of treated like this little moment in time, this little, this not little thing, but this cool event happened, this amazing event happened, but it's isolated within this cocoon of about 30-ish A.D. with some ongoing implications, sort of. But here's the deal. We've got to go back to Genesis 1 and 2. There in Genesis 1 and 2, as you just kind of familiarize your eyes with those chapters, what we see is God creates everything. He creates the heavens. He creates the earth. He creates all the living, including Adam and Eve. And the universe is this marvelous, this divine, perfect, perfect, perfect design and creation. And think of this, all of it, the earth, the stars, the the heavens, the animals, the people are all there for one purpose, to give God glory. Everything, the trees, the bees, the cows, everything is there to give God glory. Even Adam and Eve put in the perfect spot with a perfect job to care for the earth and to fill it with glory-giving people. But a problem comes along in Genesis 3. It's a really, really big problem. And it's an Adam and Eve problem. Adam and Eve knowingly do what the Creator told them not to do. And they bite the lure of self-glory. Look at Genesis chapter 3, uh, right before verse 2. He, the serpent, Satan, said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden or however a serpent talks? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. That's exactly right. Way to go, girl. She had it right on. Spot on. But verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die? Oh, really? He says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like what? God. You will be knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise... She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And instead of staying focused as glory giving creations of the great Creator God, they became glory stealers of God to themselves. And the glory givers. Became glory stealers of God well God doesn't like things let things like that just go by, so God has a little talking to and he has a talking to Satan, he has a talking to Eve and he has a talking to Adam, and he confronts the sin situation but even in the catastrophic eternal consequences that have come to bear because of their sin, God inserts his grace in this. And there's a statement about a bruising that's going to take place one day. And it's a redemptive bruising reality. One day there is going to be a victorious redeemer that comes and is going to be victorious. And then it's so cool after that. I think oftentimes we miss it. Right after the conversation, God has this talking to them, and right after it, God clothes them. Now, the whole naked thing was no big deal, but it all of a sudden became a big deal after sin. Okay? So what does God do? He goes and he covers them. He covers them, by the way, with clothing that required the shedding of blood. All the way back in the beginning. A bruising, a shedding of blood, grace. It's all there in the very, very beginning. And then God's redemptive plan continues. And it goes through this cycle of glory stealers and God bringing glory givers back into it. For instance... The earth is filled with glory stealers, we see just a few chapters later. So God, in his grace, although he wanted just to wipe the whole living thing out, God, in his grace, saves a remnant, Noah and his family. And he saves them so that they then, that after the flood, they could begin the glory-giving design again. But the glory stealing continues after that. Later on, we jump ahead further and we see God then in his sovereignty selects a man named Abram who becomes Abraham. And God says, I'm going to use you to build a nation, a nation that is a glory giving people, a people that are priests to the world, that show the world what it's like to be a group of people living for Yahweh, living for the creator. And out of that, Before he dies, Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob, and Jacob has Joseph. And then in God's sovereignty, out of this Joseph guy, through these very bizarre situations taking place in his life, talking about a very dysfunctional family, God uses this mess to be able to put these people there in the land of Egypt, slaves in Egypt. And yet, as we're going to see here in a little bit, in two weeks, we're going to start studying the story of the redemptive story of Exodus, that we see these people there from Joseph and from his family, they're multiplying like rabbits. And you see, in the beginning, there and there's all these people, these people, and the Pharaohs forget about what God had done in Joseph. And over time, all of a sudden, it becomes this nation hidden within the reality as being slaves in Egypt. And they're a nation in process, though they don't really fully know it because they're slaves. And yet, God brings this elderly trader, an adopted son of Pharaoh run away in the sticks and God pulls them out for the purpose of being used to go to redeem these people out unto him, to be a people that are glory givers for him. And the story just continues. Glory stealers, glory given, God's grace, sin. I mean, the whole thing continues. That continues all the way into the New Testament until this. This just did not happen by one guy, like in this Kawinki Dink bizarre situation. This was from the beginning. Don't lose the connection of the dots. And God has a plan to gather people unto himself that are going to be glory givers. And that's why the cross. That's why the cross. Not because of some religious reactionary, uh, a moral extremist, a fanatic that sought to be a martyr for some personal messed up illusion. But this was about the cross, about a holy creator, the second person of the Trinity. God himself coming in flesh to live and to die on the cross, to do for you and I what we cannot do for ourselves. Pay for the penalty of our sin. And yet he did for the purpose of seeking to bring a glory given people to him for eternity. That's the cross, folks. In fact, listen to kind of a a compilation of some verses here. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned. All are glory stealers, all of us. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Grace. Jesus said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. 1 Peter 3.18, it says Christ died for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. And yet here's the interesting thing. If God died for the sins of the world, Let's bring this into it, Matthew chapter 7. Jesus makes this really intriguing statement. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? And then Jesus says, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Listen, I've got to tell you, that is like, what? Because I thought John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that didn't he just die for the world? What's going on here? Because the fact of the matter is the Bible talks about there are those who have and those who don't have. First John 5, 11-13 says, And this is the testimony, God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have eternal life. I write these things to you who believe in the Son, name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. What's this all about? God is wanting to bring to himself a people that want to be glory givers for him. That's what the cross is about. That's what the cross is about. Well, let's go back to Mark 15, verse 33. Mark 15, verse 33. Jesus is on the cross. By the way, what time was Jesus nailed to the cross? 9 a.m., 9 a.m. Verse 33. And when the sixth hour came, that's noontime. Oh, folks, listen. This, this part right here is just so unbelievably cool. God is involved in the details of everything that's going on. Pay attention. Listen to this. This is just so rock and cool. Here it is, the ninth hour, it's noontime. Jesus has been nailed to the cross now for how many hours? Three hours. He's been on the cross for three hours. Now it's noontime. Noontime is the time when the sun's like, where? Straight up. It's like, bing, light's on, right? Okay, that's the time of the day. But look at this. And the sixth hour had come. There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Okay, here's Golgotha, outside of Jerusalem. They take him out. They take him. They nail him to cross at 9 o'clock. It's now noon. He's been hanging there for three hours. He's been hanging there for three hours. And at high noon, the switch gets turned off. And there he is hanging on the cross. And all of a sudden, everybody around, no one knowing. And all of a sudden, bam, it's pitch black everywhere. If it was me, and I'm like outside, and Nick and Eric and I are playing golf, because that's all pastors do, and we're out playing golf, and we're out there, and it's at noon, and all of a sudden, bam, the lights shut off, and it's pitch black. I'm like, wait a second. Hey, Nick, are we here? Is it 6 a.m., or is this like midnight, or is this like 9 p.m.? What's going on here? It's like, no, it's noon. I'm serious. It's noon. Look at my iPhone. <laughs> okay, <laughs> it's here at noon. And so there's it's It's like, what's going on? Wouldn't you be like, I'm freaking. How about are you with me? Okay, that's what's going on here. I haven't been watching the news, didn't know anything about it. And bam, everything shuts down. Now, that's over in Golgotha. Now, do you not think that the people who are there, who are watching this take place, knowing that this guy, who is a thing up here, saying, king of the Jews, and all of a sudden, creation, the sun shuts off. You not think they're going to start wondering what in the blasted world is going on here? In fact, we're going to come back to that and we're going to find out what they were thinking. Let's jump over here back to Jerusalem because you've got to understand what's taking place in Jerusalem at this time. You see, this is Passover. And during the Passover, Jerusalem, a city of normally about 250,000 people in that day, pretty good city. Okay and that's the not just in the walls but kind of what would be around that area during the Passover time would a population would have increased to around 2 million people. Okay so a lot of people coming into town they're in town they're all around town and all these 2 million people are there. Now the people in northern Israel they celebrated the Passover meal on Thursday. The people in central and southern Israel, they celebrated the Passover on Friday. It was because of how the two had their sundial set or whatever. But it was was a different system. And so on Thursday, Jesus and the disciples come in, along with the people from northern Israel, come in and they do their sacrifices. And by the way, the temple doors open for sacrifices at 3 p.m. And from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. is when the sacrifices are made. By the way, over the two days, there's almost a quarter of a million lambs that are sacrificed. In those two days, in three hours, each day. Those engineers, administrators of you are going, how in the world did they work that out? Quite a system. So it's Friday. Now think about this. All of the people from central and southern Israel are preparing to do their Passover sacrifice and meals and the whole everything associated with it on Friday. And everything centers around the time that they bring their Passover lamb or, their, or, or whatever, if they're very poor, it would be some other things, but they would bring their, their, their Passover lamb, let's say, in to be sacrificed. And if the doors opened at 3 o'clock and went to 6 o'clock, you know that you have to be prepared for that when that's going to take place. So when are you preparing for this? Well, the day before, days before, because people are coming from all around. This is the day when the chief priests and all the scribes and all the elders and all the people from central and southern would do their Passover lamb sacrifices. And there they are in the day preparing this. And you would think about it, if it starts at 3 o'clock and there's like a million people who are going to be sacrificing on that day. Listen, you've got to get yourself in an order. And if it opens at 3 o'clock, you know from noon to three you're an active little bee. And God shuts the lights off. Can you imagine the chaos? Think about that. It's not like they pulled out their flashlights, or like I have my eye light on my iPhone, or I pull it out and you know, kind of. They didn't have that. They weren't ready for this. But there they are getting ready, and at noon, boom, black. And you're, you know, we're, you know, we're, all this stuff going on. What is going on here? Hey, Junior, Junior, come on, mommy, daddy. I mean, can you imagine, think of it, the chaos. And God is doing it all on purpose. Listen, these folks, they are doing what God had told them to do. Celebrate the Passover every year. And God is messing it all up. Why? Because of what's happening over here. There's a redemption plan. This isn't like, isn't that quinky dinky? God knows exactly what's going on. God's been planning this, preparing all this. And in the chaos of everything going on here, everybody just in darkness and in chaos over here, here at the same moment is the Savior of the world giving his life for them. (laughs) Isn't that cool? Verse 34, and at the ninth hour, which is what time? 3 p.m., at the ninth hour, at the hour when the temple is opened and the beginning of the sacrifices can be made, it was dark for three hours, at the ninth hour, three o'clock, the lights are turned on, the door is opened, and Jesus over here on the cross, at all that same moment... Jesus, on the cross, says, aloy, aloy, sabachthani, Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me over here? The lights have come on, the doors are open, and the sacrifice is made. At the moment when the lambs over here, when the lambs over here are to be placed as a sacrifice for sin, that's the moment that the Savior was giving his life for sin. This is huge. And it just shows us what a cool, awesome, just, God, you are just, da!" Oh. Verse 34, at the ninth hour, Jesus cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we're back at Golgotha. verse 35, and some of the bystanders hearing it, hearing what? Hearing Christ's pronouncement, said, behold, he's calling Elijah. I, listen, you're over here, you're watching this. It's dark three hours. This guy is being crucified, not because he stole someone's Xbox, but he's dying over here because he said that he was God in the flesh. That's why he was being crucified. He really wasn't even being crucified. They didn't like him because they were taking the political reality of it all away. But the reason he died was when he said that he was God in the flesh. That's what caused this to happen. And so at that point in time, when they're over here and he's on the cross and it's dark, these people are getting nervous as all get out. And when the lights are turned back on, Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the people over here, they're shaking in their sandals. And here they are, and they're like, maybe he's calling Elijah. They don't know what's going to happen. Behold, he's calling Elijah, verse 36. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed to give it to him to drink. I think to let him talk more. Maybe when they heard him, it was kind of, I mean, the crucifixion, it's just like incredible. uh, What's the word? Where you lose dehydration. Dehydration. And talking, we got dehydration. I wonder if the reason they ran to put it on was not only to fulfill the scriptures, but in essence to be able to there, to be able to, maybe he's going to say more. I want to help him. So they put it up and then it drink while saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. Hey, they're wondering, aren't they? These guys are wondering. Maybe he is who he said he was. Verse 37, and Jesus uttered a loud cry. I wonder what that was like. Seriously. A loud cry is not a compilation of words. A loud cry is an inner expression. Well, we know it was loud because it says it was loud. But it was this cry. I mean, what was that like? I I don't know. It just, Mark put it in there. Let's not lose it. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Verse 38, back to Jerusalem. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from where... Top to bottom. Understand this. The temple area, if I remember correctly, it's like 30 inside. It's like 30 feet wide, 60 feet long, uh, 60 feet high. You come in through the doors, it's open. And this is the area where sacrifice, outside sacrifices are taking place. But this is an area that's, uh, where they would do the daily, um, the, the daily sacrifices of things every day, and morning and evening. Then there was the curtain. What was behind the curtain? Holy of Holies. The place where only one time a year a person would go into. And when that one person would go into it one time a year, they would tie a rope around his ankle. Because if he died, no one else could go in and get him and they would just pull him out, drag him out. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was at. And the article's in it. And God's Shekinah glory was there. And they had this huge curtain, thirty feet wide, sixty feet tall, and this isn't like a curtain like this that just kind of flap. And This was one mega curtain. And from top to bottom bottom it split open. Total chaos from noon to 3 o'clock. All of a sudden everything's open. And people can begin doing this sacrificial lamb process. And over here the sacrificial lamb is being sacrificed. And then over here the Holy of Holies is broken and the Shekinah glory can be accessed by anybody. All of this is happening. And I just sit back and go, that's my God. Isn't it? Oh, so cool. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Verse 39, back to the cross. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way, in this way, what do you mean this way he breathed his life? What had been saying before? What has been taking place? The, 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 My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The loud cry, the breathing is last, and death. In this way, he said truly, This man was the Son of God. And if you were here while we were going through the Mark, through the Gospel of Mark, you remember when we were talking about the term Son of God? It's not the way we think about it like biological order. It's not Luke is my son and I am his father and I have a special rank in that manner. And it's not that I gave... In other words, it's, it's, it's that there's a biological birth process here. Listen, understand this. The Son of God, as talked about in the Scriptures, is talking about the equivalent one, not biological. Not from the standpoint of, you know, immature, more mature. When it's talking about the Son of God, it's talking about the equivalent one of God. This is God in the flesh. Truly, this man was God. This is by a Roman centurion. Why the cross? Well, because without it, there's no hope of redemption. None. God so loved the world that whosoever comes to him should not perish but have life with him forever. His grace-packed love shown on the cross is about providing the means for you and I as glory-stealing people to be redeemed, to be brought back, to be bought back, to be glory givers once again. Forever. And I just have to ask this day as we reflect on this story. One, do you know the story? And two, what are you going to do with the story? There's two ways, there's multiple ways to respond, but two I'm going to make mention of. One is you can hear the story and go, that's really cool. And I'm really glad that Jesus died for all the sins of the world and all the sins of the world are taken care of. Wait a second, we have to go back to the New Testament and ask the question, why does the scripture say that there are those who do not have the son and those who have the son? Why do we go back to Matthew chapter seven where it talks about those who says, you know me and those you don't know me? What's going on with this? Well, let me just kind of, Take an illustration. Illustrations are only good to illustrate something. They don't fit the whole thing to the the T. But if I had the ability, which I don't, if I was a quasi, not quasi, but quadrillionaire, and I could write a check, a million-dollar check, to everybody on the face of the earth, and I had that done, everybody's name, your name had a check from me with a million dollars for you. And all of a sudden it became proclaimed over all the world that this guy has a check for you written, paid for. It's there and it's available. And we could say, Doug has provided the opportunity for all to be a millionaire. But it isn't yours. Until when? Until you come and get it. When you go walk. Well, Goodness sakes! Why is this guy doing this? I don't know. Who cares? No. Why is this guy doing this? I want to go get it, and you come and you get it. Say, Doug, can I have my check? Absolutely, can have your check. It's all right here. It's already been laid out. It's already been written. It's already been paid for. It's all there. It's just a matter of you coming and taking it and you putting it in your bank account. And I want to tell you, here's the reality: glory stealing people all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Means that our spiritual bank account is in debt. We owe a payment that we cannot make. And there's only one place where that payment can be paid for. And it is only through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That's why the Bible says, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. And I just want to ask you this morning, is it just a story? Or is it personal? Because I'm just telling you this. He did not do that just for an interesting story. He did that because I could not do that for me. And it's available. And I just have to ask, in a crowd this size, by the way, I think next week we're going to start talking about a third service. This is incredible. But with a group this size, I just want to tell you, do you have Jesus Christ, as your Savior. And if you don't, we would love to talk with you after the service. Because it's right there. It's just right there. It's just a matter of saying, God, I want that. I want to move from being a glory stealer to being a glory receiver. Christ has made redemption available. And if you aren't sure, make sure. Follower of Jesus Christ. There is a common mindset today where we look and we go, yeah, I have Jesus, I've got the golden ticket. And I'm going to spend eternity in heaven and I'm looking forward to that. And that may be true, but it's for now. It's not just a future thing. It's now. You see, understand this. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, the cross intended for your everything to be different, for your marriage to be different, for your dating to be different, for how you do your work different, for how you have children, relationship, what you're doing with them. It's different for how you spend your time. It's different. It's to change everything. Everything. Is it? This is the time. Listen, on this day when we remember the the triumphal entry and the cross, we cannot leave these and go, isn't that cute? I'm sorry, I can't do that. Because it was horrific. And it was because of me and my sin. And because of you and your sin. And I don't like saying that. But that's the gospel truth. And the hope is you can be redeemed back. Redeemed back to be a glory giver of him forever and ever. That's why the cross. As we talked about last week, Paul said... But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more? I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. I want to know Christ, Paul says. That's the goal. That's what it's all about. But, oh, I'm so grateful because a couple verses later, he makes this reality statement. Yes, that's the goal. But then he says, but I haven't attained it yet. I'm pursuing on to know my Savior more and more, forgetting what's behind And pressing towards what's ahead. I want to tell you the redemption story, it's a beauty. And it's marvelous. It's wonderful. And it's filled with grace. Oh God, we thank you so much for the story of your Son, the reality of your Son. And Lord, we give you the praise, we give you the glory, we give you the honor. Father, on this day, May we be reminded of the cost, but not just the cost, but the joy, the gain, the delight of the cross. Oh, my word, Lord, it's an incredible picture, but yet it was done in grace for us. I pray if there's anyone in your God this morning that doesn't know you, that they would make sure today... Because you want them to know you. You did that for them so that they can be a part of a glory-giving people redeemed unto you. May we savor the story. Oh, the love of my Redeemer. Oh, the love of my Redeemer. Oh, the love of my Redeemer. In Christ's name we pray, amen.